Hey now, this is Rob from Rob School of Music, and today on the podcast, we have the legend, Tim Pierce. See you on the other side. All right, everybody, how are you doing today? Thank you so much for tuning in once again to the Rob School of Music podcast. We've been putting these out weekly, taking the audio out of our Instagram live interviews. We do every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern. Always tune in. Coming up, we have Rudy Sarzo, Bruce Kulik, Jared Sharp, Andy Timmons, Billy Sheehan. The list goes on and on. It's really, really, I feel blessed to be able to. And then to be able to share it with our students and the greater audience here in podcast land. So thank you guys so much for tuning in. We are a music school. We do online lessons. We do in-person lessons when that's allowed with health crisis going on. But our online programs are killing it. We have teachers for all instruments and all ages, all skills, all styles. So if you want to learn something, this is sort of a choose your own destiny. We will custom make a program for you. And you will have a guitar lesson or a bass lesson or a drum lesson that is only for you. It is not cookie cutter. We don't try and fit square pegs into round holes. We make it just for you. So check us out at Rob's School of Music for that. Today on the podcast, I get to talk to Tim Pierce. I told him a funny story at the beginning of the podcast, um, at the beginning of the interview that I edited out of the podcast. But basically what had happened was, is I used to go out to California uh, to tour every year for 10 years. And we would always book our West Coast tours around January so we could spend some time at the NAMM show and talk to the companies who are endorsing us and kind of just see what the new stuff was. And then about a decade ago, I stopped doing that due to certain uh, things in life. I started a restaurant, had a family, all these other things going on. So it was really cool to um, get back out there this past January. And the world has changed so much since then. You know, social media, Instagram guitar players and YouTube stars have kind of changed our access to these people. And I had a list of some of the people that influenced me that I wanted to get to meet. Mark Letiri was on there. Uh, Pete Thorne, who happened to not be there, but at the top of my list happened to be Tim Pierce, because I really think the session world is so fascinating to me because it's different every gig and you have to be so on point and, and the gear and your gear has to be dialed in and just the attention to detail really, really, you know, it piques my interest. So I had at the top of my list to meet Tim Pierce and when uh, Sam and I walked into the uh, convention center, I turned to her and I said, you know, I told her who I wanted to meet and literally about 10 feet in front of me, there was Tim. So I went over to him and I said, hello. And, and we stood there when he had his arm on my shoulder because back in January, you could still you know put your arm on someone's shoulder or shake someone's hand. And he's standing with his arm on my shoulder and she's trying to take the picture, but then people keep talking to him. So we're just standing there arm in arm, literally for what felt like an eternity, but probably was seven minutes or so. And she's taking these pictures of us just standing there. And he, he was very generous and warm. You know, he never flinched or made it seem uncomfortable. He was a really sincere guy, and we discussed his master class, and um, getting to have this at-length conversation with him is really, really special for me, and I hope it's special for you guys. He gives some amazing tips um, on growing as a musician and how to dial in your gear and how he got the gig and just life skills that uh, kind of carry over into music and then the broader life. So enjoy, sit back, and here we have the incredible, legendary Tim Pierce.
just wanted to jump back in real fast here, guys, before we start up. As always, this podcast is sponsored by Rob's School of Music. It is also sponsored today by Samantha Mera, putting out some amazing music coming out soon. Be sure to search that up on the Instagram. Heated Exchange as well. But Rob's School of Music, we're going to be doing an amazing summer camp this year. Three sessions, all online, on Zoom. Virtual songwriting mini camp, three sessions. We're also going to be doing an audio production mini camp on Zoom. Really cool stuff. We have some great people jumping in to teach with us, guest teachers. This is something you don't want to miss. It's brand new for us. So definitely be on the lookout at robschoolmusic.com for some information on that. And also be sure to look on the Instagram for Heated Exchange and Samantha Merritt. Enjoy. I think being a session guy is the coolest gig because it's different every time. Yeah. Right. You know? So I guess the first question I'd want to ask is, you know, how, how did you get into this side of things? By this side, cause I have two professions. I actually have an online uh, education business myself that is. Oh, I know. I, I, I'm on your masterclass. Hey, okay. All right. Okay. Uh, I'm so sorry, but it's, yeah, the, the previous profession, I moved to LA in 1980 and LA was a very wide open place for musicians. There was a lot going on. Everything was live music, players everywhere. And I actually started working right away. So literally I drove to LA. I knew a roadie for a band and he got me hooked up with some musicians. And once you meet one musician and you do a good job, it's like a tree. They recommend you to others. And that's really how it happened. But it was a different time back then. That's, you know, there were, it was not computers. It was all analog. It was all live playing. So it was meeting people, doing rehearsals, doing gigs, doing demos, and then doing records. But I, I started doing records really after living here about two years. So I was, I was lucky, but I have to say LA was a pretty inviting and nurturing place. It sounds unbelievable, but LA was actually kind of an easy place to land as a musician when I did in 1980. Very cool. Very cool. When, when you're on, you know, I'm sure everyone's different, but when you get called to do a session, are people giving you something very specific you have to play? Do you get that in advance? Do you just have to, here's a piece of music, now play it? Like, what's, what's that process like? The way sessions work, people are so busy, they literally don't want to spend any time in advance. Uh, so what it is, is they want you to show up and basically have everything covered without saying a single word. So that means you should have your Les Paul and your Stratocaster and your effects and your amp and whatever. You show up, they show you the song, they hand you a piece of music, or you do a takedown in one take. People have gotten so lazy lately, they usually just maybe play you their track or their demo or whatever. You do a takedown in one take, and then you go out and you try and nail it immediately. Or in the case of overdubs, if somebody's coming over here with a song, they put it up and I really try and do something they love in the first 15 minutes to inspire confidence, because especially if you don't know them, you need to, to do something right away that kind of wins them over and transforms their song. So I usually go to the chorus and do something I can do whatever I can to make the chorus kind of explode or blossom or open up. But back to your original question, there's no time. I, I have to get my guitar sound within 60 seconds. I have to get my part immediately. Because in order for people to be confident in the process, you have to win right away. And then you can ease off a little. You have to discover what they like and what they want. 
basically they're hiring me. In my particular job, I was always hired to create the parts. If you're going into a film or television session, then there are charts. Film and television composers write everything, and then they want you to play it just as written. And then if you want to add something, they're very open to it. But in my world of songs, they came in with a track, and they wanted me to create my own parts. We would do it in a collaboration, you know, basically. But basically, it was, it's, it's been a creative job. The fact that I can't read, I can read chord charts great. I can see a figure and memorize it. But the fact that I'm not a sight reader in the world of television and movies has meant that I've been able to actually do a more creative role. Wow, that's really, that was actually my next question is, I would have assumed that sight reading was like second nature, but not so much. Not for me. I mean, guitar players have always gotten away with kind of being the worst readers in the room. And yes. I wish I could <laughs> read better because I would have had more opportunities and it would have been easier for me not, not to be like frightened when I, you know, I was always in a room with people who could read better than me. I got used to it after a while, but like I said, people ended up, end up hiring you for your strengths and people hired me to create my own parts. Uh, I have friends who sight read great and they do the movies and television stuff. So it's just a different job. Very cool. I mean, I, 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 I do your master class. I love the stuff on there. And um, it's very diverse what, what you seem to be able to bring to the table. Um, what, what are some of the, your favorite records that you've played on? And then a second part to that question would be, what are some like signature parts people could hear in a song that was like your invention? Um, I always looked at everybody as equals. So if I did a big giant record for somebody, uh, the next day I might be doing a demo for a friend and you might never even hear that. So as far as having favorite parts, I kind of leave that up to the audience and leave it up to the listener. But if I look back at my career, I mean, certainly you played at the beginning, Iris by the Goo Goo Dolls. You know, I heard that on the radio for a solid year every day after I did it. That was amazing. Um, You'll Be In My Heart by Phil Collins. The Toy Matinee record, which was an, er an early one. Uh, but generally, I, you know, there was anything that I would end up hearing, uh, basically, when I would go to the hardware store, I'd hear it up, you know, playing up above in their music, made me feel pretty amazing. Any musician would feel that way. Sure. Uh, so there's there's not a specific answer to your question. Uh, it's basically your job as, as a session musician, a lot of the time is to really, really do something very strong, but not stand out. So uh, it's, it's not, it's, it's uh, people ask me that question a lot, but I generally just kind of wave it off because for me, everybody's an equal and you're basically trying to fit in. And so it, it, it basically the, the stuff that I'm most proud of is the, the stuff that I do on YouTube every week. Which is incredible. And everyone that's watching this from my audience needs to check that out because it's a huge resource and the people you're talking with, it's so cool, man. I thank you for doing that because that's really fun as a musician. Well, the, th the, th the thing about my session career is that like I played on a Don Henley record, but I don't even remember the part that I played. I played on a Bruce Springsteen record. I don't remember those parts. I did Lana Del Rey not too long ago. I don't remember. I couldn't point those parts out to you. It all just disappears in a wash. That's your role. Your role is to create a, an amazing soundscape for an artist to sing over. So it's not like you're in the band, yes, and here's your solo on, or John Mayer or something. It's, you're not the artist. You are part of the, the soundscape. That's your job. That's what you're paid to do. To, to lift them up. And it's, it's parts that actually often kind of disappear in 
in the actual thing. It's actually really cool because, you know, a lot of our students here, they, they're, they have these aspirations as they should, as, you know, as a teenager or so to be a rock star. And I always try and instill in them and our other teachers that, you know, just the ability, the gift to play music professionally, you know, you play at a bar, they pay you a hundred bucks. You're technically a professional, but to know where your place is in every single gig. And if you're backing up some singer, you know, and she's the artist, don't get in everyone's face and rip a solo because that's not your job. Like know where you fit. Well, happy. it's yeah, it's it, the idea is you're an ensemble player and you're part of a small orchestra and your role is to be as strong as you possibly can create all the sounds and parts. And the challenge with guitar live, if let's say you're backing up a huge star, who would that be right now? Taylor Swift? I don't know. Think of anybody. Your actually job, your job is to come up with all the parts and sounds on the record and maybe create some of your own parts and sounds. But in the case of an artist like Pink and Justin Derrico, she features him in her show. So they're, yes. they're, they want the guitar player to walk to the front of the stage and be Eddie Van Halen, sometimes for a segment. So it's still very, a very important thing to be able to show off and be super strong and out front and then step back and be behind the artist. You know, we've seen our favorite artists, the guitar players often featured, mm -hmm. but it's within the structure of whatever's happening, you know, on that stage. Totally. I, two weeks ago, uh, Tim Stewart was the person I was speaking with and he's with Lady Gaga and a bunch of other pop yeah. stars. And I was, you know, as I was talking to my students and my friends, as, as we were leading up to the, the conversation, I was like, this guy is the coolest gig because you're playing with an artist that's going to have a sold out stadiums and arenas every gig. And you get to do your part and fit into this massive, massive machine. I think that's great. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's let's go deeper into what makes Tim Pierce work. What was the first meaningful record that you ingested? And then the first concert that you were like, I want to do that. Well, it, it, my love of music comes from Top 40 Radio in the 60s, which is going to, you know, it's hard to explain, but it was pretty magical listening to the Beatles for the first time on the radio. And I, I was a little that. kid playing my, in, with my trucks in the side yard. But really, it was, so it was the Beatles, and it was all the songs on the radio in the 60s. But then, in the late 60s, Jimi Hendrix showed up. And that really was the most profound experience. Led Zeppelin, the early Led Zeppelin records. I was there for all of those records, Sgt. Pepper's, Cream. They all were coming out one by one and we were looking at them and listening to them going, what is this? So I was hooked. So Clapton, B.B. King, uh, ZZ Top, Billy Gibbons, um, Jimi Hendrix at the top of the list. Those are the reasons and those are the records that I started, you know, that that lit me up. I mean, I was, I was hooked. I was hooked. Crazy. That's so lucky to be there. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a good time. I was 12 years old in 1970. And the first concert I saw was Neil Diamond. I asked my mom if I could go to the Hendrix show, but she wouldn't let me. I think I was too young, but then I finally went to a Neil Diamond concert. Uh, and to me, that was a huge rock concert. And it was kind of was, that was, I think in 1970. And, but then after that, I started going to see concerts, Led Zeppelin, Sly and the Family Stone, ZZ Top, The Who, all the, all the greats, they would come through Albuquerque, and I, I saw most of them. It was great. That's amazing. Very cool. Gosh, I can't even imagine, like, you know, my first concert was no doubt uh, at a local community college, and it did it for me. It totally did. Like, I was standing, there was massive subwoofers, and I felt the music for the first time, and that, you know, I was like 13 or 12, and I was like, okay, I get it. But to, to get, you know, the legends as, you know, the first guy, that's, that's wow. Um, so I saw a question in, in the chat here. Someone was saying, 
do you consider yourself still learning? And if so, what was the last, you know, sort of cool thing you learned on, on the guitar that you're like, oh, cool. I am still learning, but I, I, I am surrounded by guitar players who can kind of play circles around me. Um, something happened in the guitar community over the last 10 years where people just started excelling. And I am still learning, but I'm actually kind of learning to be an educator now. And that's a little bit different. I, 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 I love the online yeah. teachers that are kind of doing the same thing that I'm doing. I think they're all better than me, than me also. So I'm in a pretty humble place. I, I'm kind of a slow melodic guitar player. And that's kind of my favorite thing. Like, you know, I always liked Larry Carlton on Steely Dan records. And I like David Gilmore. And like I said, I like Hendrix. So I've never been a guy with a lot of chops. I mean, I have a way of playing fast that's a little bit kind of uh, cheating. You know, I have my way. It's mostly left-hand speed. You know, I can go. You know, uh, but it's most, for me, it's mostly like trying to make a musical statement that's melodic. So when I go back to your question and what have I learned lately, I don't really study other guitar players. I just try and make pieces of music that are the best they can be. And within that, it's, it's pretty challenging. Like I just did something where I tried to go. But it was faster than that and you know, it's, it's, I do performances for YouTube and for my masterclass and I have to reach pretty high sometimes in my own humble way to, to make those performances work. So I actually learned, relearned the spider exercise last week. And that for me is a bitch. I mean, look how I flubbed that. To keep the fingers planted, yeah. check this out. To keep them planted and do the spider exercise. I mean, if I did it for a half hour, I'd be a little better at it. So there you go. I mean, total, it's, it's the spider. What's, what have I learned lately? It's the spider. That's awesome that you say that though, because we always, you know, people are notorious, maybe in my experience, guitar players, you know, they learn stuff in the beginning. And then when they get a little bit more intermediate, they never touch that stuff again. And then, you know, say if someone starts in January, by August, they've not done anything that's from the start. And I'll say, let's go back and try those things again. And they can do so many technically amazing things, but the beginner stuff, it's gone. I'm like, no, no, you got to keep it. It's a, it's, a, it's a big process, you know? Well, there's your proof. I just busted out a couple of sort of flashy licks, and then I flubbed the spider right in front of you. So there's your proof. There we go. That's okay. I flub things daily. <laughs> Um, what, I guess this is going to segue into a couple of gear based questions because you have the coolest gear. Um, I see you got the PRS there. So, what, uh, which I have a whole wall behind me cause I love yeah. them as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what would you say is your like go-to guitar, like favorite piece of gear guitar wise, I guess. At this point it is the PRS. Floyd Rose brought me a Stratocaster that he's making right now that I love also. But the shorter scale is easier for me to get around on. I spent my whole life, because of my profession, having to play every kind of guitar. I had to play a Jaguar for some things. I had to play a Gretsch for some things. 
had to play a 335 for some things. I've got great old Gibsons. I've got three great 30, 335s, six or seven Les Pauls. I just sold one of them. But these days, I like the guitars that I can play that are kind of, they're like Ferraris or Lamborghinis. They just play themselves. So if I pick up this PRS that is my newest one, I can, I can travel on it smoothly and, and beautifully at the best of my ability. If I pick up my Les Paul, it kind of fights me a little bit because it's not made like this. I mean, these, these guitars play themselves. So it really is the PRS. PRS, Tom Anderson, and now this new Floyd Rose Strat. I like these guitars the best. Is that one of the Floyd Roses that has like that arch under the... Yeah, I tried the one with the full speed plate and then I, he brought me one with a half speed plate. I like the one with the half speed plate because I can really play fast with the speed plate over here by the bridge. Right. And then when I move over by the neck, it's traditional and there's the deep section and I can right. dig in. That's the one. That's the one he's going to do well with. Very he just fun. has to start making them again. You know, because of the pandemic, he had to stop production, I think, but he'll start making them really soon. That's awesome. I, I had no idea about any of that and I saw your video about it. Yeah. Sought that out back in January at NAM, and I was like, wow, this is, this is really smart. And I would have never thought to do that, you know? Well, you should go next time there's a NAM, which might not be next year, but the year after, <laughs> go visit Floyd. He's a wonderful human being. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, he's, 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 he, the guitar he makes, even without the speed plate, it's a great guitar because he has that aesthetic from all of his work in the 80s and stuff. He makes a great guitar. So I'm, I love him. Yeah, no, I, I had, in 1999, I had my guitar teacher build me a guitar. And at the time, I wanted to be Steve Vai. So I got the Floyd with the recess so I can go up and down. And now it's kind of like my stunt guitar. It doesn't serve most of the music I do, but it's definitely something to have in the arsenal. Um, uh, all right, so w when you go to a typical session, like, what are you bringing with you? Like a, a Strat style guitar, Les Paul style guitar, like... What you have so many amps and things? Do you like just pull up the U-Haul and unload all your gear? Like, how does that work? Well, it, it's all down to everything is pretty much changed in that regard. In the '90s, all my gear was at a cartridge company, and a truck would show up, and they would pay between three to five hundred dollars to have it all set up and taken down. And I would bring like forty or fifty guitars. I'd bring like eight or ten amps. Bring pedal boards, racks. You know, when racks were popular, I'd bring racks. Uh -huh. So. The way it used to work is you get the session call and the, the, you call the warehouse and tell them they bring all the gear. I would meet them early so that it was all set up just right, but they would set up your gear for you and it was a massive amount of stuff. Then as the 90s progressed, people uh, in the guitar realm, they, they started losing interest in the, the, the arsenal so much and they wanted smaller rigs, but you would still have cartage, but you might bring a smaller rig just so you didn't take up so much room in the control room and it was just more fashionable to have less. It, it was just a weird thing that happened. Partly when Nirvana showed up in 1993, the nature of music changed. You weren't trying to get all the effect sounds. It was more earthy. So I stopped bringing a rack, but I would bring tons of heads for choices. And you know, you'd have a high watt and a box and a diesel and whatever, so you get all these different sounds. Now, fast forward, because budgets are so small, now they don't really have cartridge most of the time. So I will bring a 112 cabinet, I'll bring my divided by 13 head, which is a great, sweet sounding head. I'll bring a pedal board so I can get all the effects I need and, and stuff. And then I'll bring a complement of guitars that are in the family of Gibson, family of Fender. 
and then a couple of acoustics. So I might bring six or eight guitars, a 112, a head, and a pedal board, and that does the job. Now, if they come to my house, I can give them, you know, 70 guitars and 15 heads and every effect in the world. But I started doing this a long time ago. It's actually better for them if they just show up here with the hard drive and do the overdubs here because I can flow better. I can go quickly. All my stuff's right around me. It's like an airplane cockpit, so I don't have to get something out of the hallway. It increases momentum. I designed this studio so that there would be no break in momentum no matter what. If I see somebody's eyes start to change and look away, I can stop the music and ask them what's going on. So I'm looking people in the eye because we have mirrored setups. And then if I want to use a Marshall, it's right here. If I want to use a box, it's right here. If I want tremolo, it's right here. That's why this cockpit is here, so that there's no interruption in flow, in workflow. So back to your question, I talked to Tom Bukovac, Bukovac about this a couple of weeks ago. He even brings less when there's no cartridge because he feels like he's doing them a favor. He'll just bring two guitars. So when I don't have cartridge, I'll bring a little more than Tom does. But, you know, some players will bring the Kemper. It all depends on, you know, what they're willing to do. But really, budgets have changed so much that it's all what the player is willing to bring. Very cool. That makes sense, I guess. What is your, um, so I was an amp guy forever. I still am. I have quite a few, probably more than I should. And I can't seem to stop that addiction, but I, I, you know, my, I stopped touring in the probably 2012. I had a a son and then I kind of segued into like the teaching and then weddings and corporate gigs and things like that. So it would just be like a Fender Deluxe and a big pedal board to get all the sounds. Yeah. Um, and then I tried the Helix and I didn't like it. And then I tried the Helix seven other times and didn't like it. Never got my hands on a Kemper. I recently just got one of the, uh, the fractal FM3s, the, uh, the floor model of the Axe FX. Uh, I'm in love with it. And, yeah. and it's the first modeler I've ever touched that feels like an amp. What are your thoughts on amp modeling? I love fractal. Uh, modeling still sounds artificial, but I don't, I, that's not a criticism. Music guitars on YouTube, because of the way um, distortion is kind of processed digitally, they sort of sound artificial anyway. Once you put a guitar, a distorted guitar, into the digital realm, uh, it begins to pixelate and sound a little artificial anyway. So a Kemper, I don't don't mind that the Kemper sounds artificial. I love Fractal the most of all because they're the deepest company. They, They try the hardest. They invest the most in their products. When you buy a Fractal, you're getting, you know, eight times the firepower of, of a Kemper right. because of what's built into it. So I'm glad they've come out with something that you love and it feels real to you. I love it. Any, any, any modeler puts it straight in your face. Mm-hmm. To me, once you start overdubbing, with any modeler, you do hear the top end pixelating a little bit and you do hear a bit of an artificial top end. I don't really live in that world because I have amps around me all the time and I do the music here. But if I go out to another studio, I'm happy to use the Kemper or the Fractal. Uh, I embrace it. Um, and this stuff gets better every year. So the unit you just got from Fractal, no doubt, it sounds amazing. The great thing about the distorted sounds in the Fractal, because they're direct, they're right in your face. And that's a benefit. So I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, man, it, it's, it's really blew my mind. I've been doing videos on YouTube every Friday of me just demoing patches and I don't tweak a thing. I just literally, I try and give the experience of plugging in an app and going. And I get a lot of people pissed off on YouTube because of that, because they want to see you tweaking, but I, I, that's too much. I just want to, here's what yeah. you get out of the box. And I love it. I love it too. I love that you, um, you do that. 
Cool, man. Thank you. Um, all right. So this is a big one that it, it's, you can answer it how you choose. Um, Correct. Being again that we're a school, a lot of our students are younger and they're having their first experiences performing in front of people. We do, um, we're in a town and there's a big street fair twice a year. So we do big performances there and we do an end of the year themed recital. We did all Beatles songs last year. Um, we also have a band program where we put the, the students in bands and actually book them paying gigs. And nerves and anxiety are a huge factor that, mm -hmm. you know, we try and help people with. As you mentioned earlier, some of the, you know, sessions have been on, it's a little nerve wracking when you get in there. How do you manage those nerves? What would be your advice? Well, you get used to it. Sessions are not as nerve wracking in some ways because you can, uh, you can actually make a mistake and just punch it in and you can, tr you can try something. The, the guitar players can be exploratory and, and experimental in session work, unless you're on a film date. If you're on a film date, everybody plays it perfectly the first time. So that's, that's a, but that's a pressure that I don't, I don't even try for anymore because I realized I wasn't that guy. And, and but when it, but so let me just say that nerves are always there and it hasn't gone away for me, but really, once you get a game going, you can live through the period of nervousness. And the period of nervousness might only be the first half hour. But the thing is, muscle memory takes over. Uh, I will tell you something. Last, I, when it, it was last May or, or two years ago, whenever the last PRS Experience Festival was, Paul Reed Smith is a friend of mine, and he put me on kind of in the finale. Okay, so I don't know why he did that. So I had to watch and listen to probably 20 amazing guitar players get on stage and play before me. And they all could play circles around me. Chop, speed, taste, everything. All these great guys. And I had to go on last, and I got really nervous. Now, when I went on stage after standing, I, one thing I did, and I always recommend this, if you are nervous before a gig, get the guitar in your hands for a couple of hours and just warm up, just like I, what I'm doing now. Just make it your friend and warm up. Make it kind of just muscle memory. Just play everything you possibly can to make it comfortable so that even when you're not thinking about it, the hands are working. I always did that when I was on tour, like with Rick Springfield, when I would tour with him, I would spend from three o'clock till about, we went on stage about eight o'clock, just with the guitar in my hands. So that it's, it's, I don't feel like an imposter, okay? It's awesome, you could put the thing in your hands. So that's what I did when I was waiting to get on stage, watching every guitar player get up there and just kill it. I'm feeling nervous, feeling nervous, but I've got the guitar in my hands and I'm going, okay, this is, this is you know, okay, there's the nerves. I, get up, I got up on stage and this was a year ago. I was the most nervous I've ever remember feeling. I felt like I was in a plane that was crashing. <laughs> <laughs> I got up there and my muscle memory held me strong. Because when I look back at the video, my pocket's okay. I had to actually simplify, you know, I didn't take it, uh, you know, I didn't do some of the, you know, flashy stuff that I would usually do because I was so nervous. I was just trying to hold on. But muscle memory held, it, held me strong. And that's really the message I have for everybody. The nerves will be there. But if you actually keep the guitar in your hands for the two or three hours prior to the event, or even for a half hour, whatever you can muster up, your muscle memory will hold you firm. That's and, then, it's like autopilot. and then what will happen? There's usually a period after the first song 
or the first 15 minutes when it all goes away. And you have that to look forward to. And you're just kind of like, oh, this is, I'm, we're doing it, you know? <laughs> That's great. That's actually really refreshing to hear because, you know, it, it's in that moment, it, it feels like you're suffocating almost, you know, like a plane crashing. It, it, there's no rational logic behind it. But we're always saying, you know, that muscle memory, autopilot, it just kicks in. That's great. So that's two plane references, plane crashing, autopilot. You see that? <laughs> um, very cool. Let's see here. I got my, my list of questions. Uh, what, what PRS is that actually that you're rocking there? Well, this is a new one and it's called, the pickups are called TCI pickups. It's a McCarty. You know, honestly, I prefer the single cuts, but I, Paul gets his feelings hurt when you tell him that. So, cause he really, he just loves his design. So uh, uh, this guitar, it sounds and plays better than any PRS I've ever, ever had. And that's because he keeps raising the bar with his technology. It's really bright and uh, bell-like. It's a little thin when you solo on it. So I have to bring thickness back with a, a pedal. But because of that thinness, it sounds very chimey and bell-like, you know. Uh, and so I'd rather have it be a little light and bright and then when i'm soloing just get get the thickness back from a pedal that has a lot of mid-range then have it be cloudy from its inception and try and weed that out somehow right. it's this thing is is it sparkles and it plays like a dream and it's just you know it's just great it really is <laughs> I, lo I love the McCartney. I actually, my main one, I use this one. Oh, yeah, it's very similar to this. Absolutely. It's the rosewood on the head. It's just, yeah. oh, my gosh. Yeah. But I don't know what you're saying, that, like, the, the bell like the clarity to it, it's its its own thing. It, it's beautiful. Yeah. Very cool. Um, all right, so outside of music, this one always uh, – there's one particular student asked this question every week and I feel like I have to ask it. Yeah, um, right. So outside of music, do you have things that like uh, favorite books or hobby, cooking, golf, like what, what do you do outside of doing this? Because a lot of the people they're saying music is something fun and as a beginner, you might not understand that that fun can become a job. So what is, you know what I mean? Yeah, my devotion to music is strong, but it's 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 not. I'm not as devoted as some of the people we talk to. You know, uh, I always try and be mostly done with my work uh, during the, at the end of the daylight hours because I walk in them. I live kind of in the mountains in the hills, and I walk every night at around sunset. I take a long walk, sometimes with my wife, sometimes by myself. During that walk, I call people back. People like Rick Beato or Mark Letary or you know the people we know. Um, so for me, exercise, swimming, walking in the mountains, very important because that's how I work out. Ergonomics with guitar are pretty, pretty brutal at a, you know, at a certain point. And so it's great to get out of this chair, get the guitar off and go exercise, swimming, walking. And then with the wife, we watch, you know, movies together. Now I'm, I'm a big fan of, you know, really high quality stuff on Netflix or HBO or Amazon Prime. There's a show on Amazon Prime called Bosch, which is one of the greatest detective shows I've ever seen. It's brand new. It's been out for six years or five years, and it makes L.A. look amazing. It's really smart, really intelligent. So I watch that. 
I love to eat. Uh, I love to, <laughs> you know, st these days I actually take a nap. My th thing is because my web business is going so strong, my focus during the day is often on the web business. So I work seven days a week. I the, keep the work mostly mandatory till three or four in the afternoon and then mostly optional till I go to bed. So what that means is I keep applying myself to making videos, making films, doing sessions. And plus I like to do sessions in the morning. So if I'm doing a session, I usually try and structure it so it's in the morning. Unless I'm out of the studio, then it's just up to, you know, you're there all day. But if I'm, if I'm doing an overdub on a song, I try and schedule it at 10 or 11 in the morning. All the web business stuff, all the video making, I try and push as hard as I can to get stuff done during the day. And then by five in the afternoon, I ease off and start to just relax. And the, some of the funnest times is I'll come back here into the studio from eight to 10 or nine to 10 and do some cool work, but that's always optional. I never force myself. How early in the morning do you start in your musical day? Uh, I usually get up at around seven and I usually get into the studio at around nine or something. And then it's, it's never efficient. It just depends on what, what's going on, making a video or setting up a sound, or if there's a session going, you know, I'm there for that session. Very cool. That's actually very fascinating because a lot of the stuff that myself and the, we have uh, nine teachers, including myself, not all guitar, but you know, uh, you know, guitar, yeah. drum shot, everything. And, you know, we're in New York, it's been like California, pretty, pretty rough over the last three months or so. So we're all starting to lose our minds. And I keep trying to, you know, implore into them, structure your debt. Yeah. Say, I'm going to be, I'm going to be creative at this point, And I'm going to do the bookkeeping at this point, And I'm going to work out at this point and make sure you put meals in there. And that's, that's great to hear from someone, you know. Well, yeah. One uh, other thing I will say about that. And the pandemic has taught me this. If I, if I keep away from phone calls, because when I talk to somebody on the phone, it's like this, it's very, we're very, you know, engaged and right. it actually takes a lot of energy. Like at the end of this, you and I will have expended energy. Yep. And I have found that if I avoid these kinds of wonderful conversations until after my initial workday, which is the workday that ends at three or four in the afternoon, the workday is much better. Like if I have a really intense conversation, be it for pleasure or business at noon, I lose energy for the next three hours. So that's what you're saying is really true. Try and stay focused. It doesn't mean you have to be efficient. It doesn't mean you can't surf the web or get something to eat or even take a nap. But if you are engaged with people, you know, if you're a teacher, then that's your job. So you're going to be teaching people early in the day. But if you're trying to get something done, save the fun conversations, the extraneous conversations till after two or three o'clock. And I've, I've read about executives who do this. There's a guy, a really big executive who said he doesn't, he does not, he does not engage with anybody until noon. So that that morning can be his best time for focusing on the big things, the big things that he wants to do. I love that. It's true. Like I have some friends who are, you know, they're, they don't have, they're out of work right now and they'll call me at like 11 AM just to, you know, BS. I'm like, I can't, I cannot do that now because before you know it, we're telling stories and we're laughing. And then I'm like, I need a nap. <laughs> I've tried. I, I really want to do that. I tried so hard to do that. And it's like, I finally decided, got to wait till three o'clock. And what did you do? I you put me at three o'clock, six o'clock. So it's perfect. Awesome. See, that was meant to be. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So you do the, the, the Grammys. That's like one of the, that's, can you talk about that a bit? Because I think that's very fascinating. Well, uh, there was the, the, the most recent time I was on the primetime Grammys was maybe seven years ago when Glenn Campbell was making his last appearance and I was in the actual band that had to play the primetime Grammys. Uh, and that's a whole nother level of pressure because we were rehearsing in front of Paul McCartney. I mean, I had to play this Jerry Reed riff that's a finger picking riff that's really demanding in front of Paul McCartney. And then, you know, the, when the, the, it's just a whole different level. And the, the, the red light from the television camera is right on you for that. Uh, the Grammys these days is a much younger set of musicians. So you're not going to see, for the most part, guys like me in the background at the primetime Grammys now because it's a, the, there's been a changing of the guard. Prior to that, you would see me and my friends up there a lot, backing up different artists. Now, the Grammys that I do, it's what I call the regular people Grammys. During the day, they give away 70 to 80 Grammys to all the categories that don't end up being, there's like only eight or 10 or 12 in the primetime category. Mm -hmm. And that's more a concert with famous celebrities than it is you know, a Grammy award show. We kind of do the real Grammy award show, which is all the people at every level, engineers, producers, you know, reggae artists, bluegrass artists. You know, I kind of said it in my video. It kind of says what yeah. it is. It's the working people Grammys. They give away 70 or 80 awards and we're the house band and we do play-ons. And it's just a really fun thing to show on YouTube because I have to learn 80 songs. I'm enough of a reader to where if I memorize something, when I come back to it, I go, oh, there's the figure. Oh, right. there's the chords. There's the thing. The other guys, they all just sight read it. So they show up on the first day and they just sight read the stuff. We do one rehearsal and they're, they're golden. You know, that's really, you know, you're in L.A. If you're in Nashville with the best readers in the world, they're sight readers. They right. see it one time. They're going to get it. But I actually study the stuff for a week to 10 days in advance. So that when I show up, it's a combination of memorization and sight reading not sight reading but reading you there's no way you can memorize 80 songs mm -hmm. it's so many songs that i'll pull up open a page and i'll look at the song and i'll go i don't even know what this is it says like you know get ready or whatever and i can't even remember what the song is you know what the amazing thing about that gig is though the musical director's a genius che che alara he has somebody sitting there and in your headphones he plays you the first like five or eight seconds of the song. Everybody, the drummer, everybody's hearing the first five seconds of the cue that you're doing. So you, you immediately recollect the pocket, the groove, the sound, everything. And any doubts you have about what is this get ready or, you know, love somebody or whatever, because there's so many titles are the same. All right. <laughs> you're hearing the actual, you know, song in your head for five seconds. It's brilliant. That is brilliant. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I, on a much smaller scale, uh, you know, I'll have wedding gigs where I get called for something, you know, say a Friday, a Saturday, a Sunday, and it's different music every night. And I can't memorize all the songs. So I have an you iPad can't. with all my charts and stuff. You can't. But on the spot, I, I'm not reading very well either. So I have my own little cheat sheets with little diagrams I draw and little bits. But sometimes I'll look at that, but I still, I'm like, what, what song is this? And I wish I had something in my head to go, you know, the first, like, even two seconds just goes, got it, boom. Well, the, one of the great things about being a guitar player is you can always kind of ease in. You can play on <laughs> two. You know, you can say if it's A minor, the, the drummer counts it off. You can kind of just kind of listen for a second and go, oh, 
You know, there we go. you know, bass players can't do that. A bass player has to be on the one beat all the time. So, right. guitar players, nobody. It's kind of a relief. If a guitar player lays out. It's kind of like ah, he stopped for a second. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> um, what would be advice? You know, you keep referencing pocket and things like that. Timing, timing, and rhythm. You know, I find that I can teach someone, here's where you put your fingers. I can even physically move them for you. But to get someone to feel that rhythm, like what exercises would you recommend for that sort of stuff? Well, one of the things I teach and I profess with the right hand is keep it going like a pendulum of a clock so that it never stops. So you're just picking. So that's just three notes. But my hand never stops doing this. That more than anything will keep your pocket solid. So the hand should never stop moving, whether you're grabbing air or you're grabbing just, or you're grabbing the actual notes that you want to choose. That's one thing. But I would say these days, really just play along with a drum groove. Start collecting drum loops, play along with them. Check yourself against the feel of a great drummer. And what we did, because we didn't have any of this technology, we played along with records. If you play along with your favorite record, your pocket is gonna start imitating that record. Try and pay attention to the differences between your pocket and the pocket of the guitar that you're hearing on the record and try and close that gap. Yeah. But you want it to be steady, you want it to be relaxed. Test yourself by recording it and go, oh, wait, I'm sounding stiff there. You don't want to sound stiff. You want to sound loose. You want to lay back. Just test yourself against great, great music that you're playing along with. Very cool. Very cool. I like that. Actually, I just saw this. One of my students here, Caitlin, she just jumped on. And we're getting into rhythm. So I hope she heard that because that was great yeah. advice. And yeah, she put the emoji of a guitar. So we'll take that as a yes. <laughs> what, um... I love pedals. Oh my gosh, it is my worst, worst addiction, my vice. I, I have, you know, the last handful of gigs I was doing, I was going out, I'm looking at my pedal board here, there was 14 or so pedals on it. Um, what are your go-to, like what's your favorite phaser? What's your favorite overdrive? Anything new that's really cool? Well, I don't really chase pedals as much as I used to, uh, but that being said, this, is the most amazing pedal out there. If you get one of these fully loaded for delays and reverbs and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, you say, what's your favorite phaser? Phasing is something that I generally would not use on guitar. It's not really fashionable right now. Reverb wise, this MXR uh, reverb, the black one, which I won't pull over here because it's wired in, little black MXR reverb, amazing. But there are lots of other ones that are amazing too. Generally, the, the, if, if you get a tremolo pedal these days and it's a boss tremolo, I mean, boss pedals, you can't go wrong with. Other people will say that too. Um, delay wise, the prime, what's this one? Is it called the Strymon Timeline? This is a that good is one too. Epic. Now these are kind of expensive, but delays, you want them to be darkened and modulated. I'm actually doing a video about that right now. So it's really good to spend money on a delay that will give you the tempo in beats per minute that you can modulate and darken. So you can chorus it and make it dark so it hides behind your original signal. That's for delays. For overdrives, get something that's a clone of the Nobles ODR-1. People are chasing that all the time. Get something that's a clone of the Mostortion. A friend of mine makes a pedal called the Karma pedal. 
that is a clone. It's great. I use an MXR microamp, which is basically a cleaned up. Uh, no, it's the MXR boost line driver, which is basically a cleaned up microamp. I like, I like overdrive pedals that are not fuzz, that are not distortion, but they are gain that actually slams the front end of the amp. That way your amp just sounds like more of a rock beast. It doesn't sound fuzzy or artificial. So I like natural gain overdrives. So have a really good overdrive, a nice reverb pedal, a nice tremolo, and a nice delay. Those, those are mostly all the effects that you need. Now, if you want to get into a whammy pedal, that's fine. But that stuff has fallen out of fashion a bit these days. People like their guitar sounds to be somewhat unadorned these days. And so chorus and phasing and flanging and synth sounds and whammy sounds are not in use as much, not, not as much as they were in the 90s. Yeah. It's so strange because I, when I was, you know, touring and stuff, my board was 60% modulation pedals just because we didn't have a keyboard player. So I was making all the funny noises. And you're totally right. You know, that reverb is everywhere now. And yeah, and it, I love it because I yeah. couldn't, in the 90s, I wasn't allowed to print reverb. It was like, yeah, we don't want you to print that. And yeah. now people love it. I can print reverb on everything. <laughs> it's awesome. I, I just figured it. that's how the guitar sounds. It's awesome. Right. There you go. Oh. Shh, no one knows. <laughs> Um, it's funny you said with the boss pedals, because there's, I think Instagram did this. There's this pretentiousness now with all the boutique stuff. And, you know, these, there's so many hashtags connected to pedal boards and it's like, and I'll see in, in the cover band world, someone will show up with, with all you need, just a couple of boss pedals and, and a Fender amp or something or a Marshall and they're ready to go. But there's always yeah. that dude who walks in who's like, oh yeah, that's what you got. And don't get me wrong, I have more boutique pedals than I probably should, but it, it, there's like this headstock snobbery, you know, that's falling onto the pedal world as well. Yeah, it'll, it'll always be part of it. You know, you just, you know, the sound really does come from your hands. And when you look at super, super big rock star guitar players, it's like guys like Jeff Beck or David Gilmore or John Mayer or, or Joe Bonamassa, their rigs are small. I mean, Joe Bonamassa or John, I mean, it's like they just use, they find like the, this small palette of stuff that's really effective and they don't mess with a lot of outside stuff. Then maybe they add stuff later, you know, but it, I was always shocked at how you would, you would find out that these really huge guys actually were using some pretty regular stuff. Yeah. Anyway, I just, I actually follow Tom Bukovac. I mean, he's, he's my, he always has been my kind of, he's kind of, when I first met him on a Rob Thomas record in the early 2000s, it was kind of like, oh, this guy is actually doing all the work for us. And Tom is the first guy to say, I like boss pedals. <laughs> I mean, so if I had a recommendation for, you know, following somebody who's figuring out pedals, go to, just go to what Tom says on the Internet. He's the guy. Very cool. It's, um, it's interesting because, like, I love John Mayer. I love his playing. And uh, I got I got it. A silver sky because they said oh that's yeah. you know i'll be like yeah. john mayer you know whatever i want to get and it has these tiny little frets that i really don't like that much at all i like big fat frets i love the way the pickups sound but it's like the simplicity of it like you plug this into an amp there's nothing crazy it has a very there's like so many tones within the tone knobs and roll back the volume but i don't know in some way it showed me like it's just a just a strat style guitar there's no magic the magic is you know yeah, and that guitar, I agree with you. It's it, it it's not the easiest thing to fly around on. In fact, the on the contrary, is... it my hands don't move that well on my Silver Sky. 
But when people ask me to pick up a Strat, I pick it up and it kind of wins. Yeah. I mean, if, if people ask me to do a Nile Rodgers part, that guitar kills it. Yeah. And it's partly the fat neck and the small frets, the very things that make it hard for me to, to do flashy, you know, go boom mm -hmm. on, which I can't do on the Silver Sky because of what you're talking about, the fat neck and the small frets. That thing makes it perfect for Nile Rodgers style rhythm. So yeah. it's an amazing thing they did. For $2,000, it's, it's really a great rhythm. I would say that's the rhythm guitar strat, you know, that, that'll, that all you need. If you want to play rhythm on a strat, which I'm going to do anyway, Maybe not. I mean, it's like, I, I just, I love hot rod guitars too. I love fat frets and necks that are so, the action's so low that you can play, you know, you can do anything mm -hmm. on them. Yeah, of course. But for a skanky rhythm part, for a really cool rhythm part, that's the beast. Totally. I love those pickups. Whatever Paul did, they are so They stratty. aced it. Yeah. They nice. aced it. Yeah. Well, Instagram is going to shut us down in two minutes, so I'm going to say, my goodbyes now so i don't get i'm notorious for talking over it and then it just got like and then it's done <laughs> so tim thank you so much this was a dream come true getting to have this conversation with you thank you very much um you know i look forward to following all the cool stuff you put out there and and we just we thank you man you're awesome well this is a great time and guitar you know guitar should be fun it's 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 a it, you never master it and the thing i would say is there are always people out there i mean mark letary I mean, he plays circles around me, but everybody finds their voice. And I was always interested in a more simple approach. And so whatever you've got, you can make it great. Yeah. It doesn't, have, awesome. to, it doesn't have to be Mark Letary. So just enjoy uh, the music and enjoy the guitar. Yeah.